speaking of bread, I mean, uh, back in our house, in our kitchen, uh, which is where bread is made, okay, and I'm not going to make it. We have something else. We've got a uh, Amazon Echo Show. Anybody have something like that at home? I mean, there's different types of Amazon Echoes and there's adapters, that kind of thing. But this is the one where we've got a screen, okay? And, it, and it, as, as you walk into the kitchen, we'll see you know, little messages there, like, um, ask Alexa, things that we can ask, ask Alexa. Ask Alexa for uh, the uh, recipe to you know, bake bread. Or, or ask Alexa how to bake or, or make two lamb pies, something like that. Anyway, I walked in there um, the other day, and it said, ask Alexa for mental health tips. <laughs> Alexa for mental health tips? I mean, it's time for like the apocalypse of the planet at last. Or, or maybe it's really a description of really what's going on out there, that, that people are facing such, uh, you know, things that are associated uh, or, or a result of, you know, quarantines and, and all these kinds of things with, with COVID, that they're even asking Alexa for mental health tips. You know, when we've got um, isolation and loneliness and things like that going on out there, that's really kind of negative effects there. But, you know, well, curiosity got the better of me. Okay, I thought, okay, what could Alexa possibly tell me about mental health tips? So I asked her, Alexa, tell me about mental health tips. And so she <clears throat> told me the things like get enough sleep and get to make it right. And, and I thought, I didn't need Alexa to tell me that. <laughs> You know, it's pretty, pretty shallow advice. But what do I expect from Alexa? And I'm not going to expect some, you know, psychological therapy session or something like that. But, but what occurred to me, too, was this. That with the things that, that would point them to provide mental health tips, you know, for people, you know, the needs that people have out there, why just mental health tips? Why, why, not, why not, you know, look at the whole life? What, whatever happened to spirituality? You know, it wasn't all that long ago that the church was kind of wringing its hands over the number of people, lives, and the number of people who were saying that they were spiritual but not religious. But these days, I wonder, you know, if spirituality itself is even making the way out. And if that's the case, if, that, if that's kind of fading into the background, then what about Jesus? You know, how, how significant is Jesus for people in their lives and, and being able to meet those needs of daily life? You know, the Jesus himself is, you know, for a lot of people, really not even, not even close to the way that. And, and not real, not, not, you know, with this story about him, that the gospel message really is nothing serious. So while we are talking about the truth in this series that we, series that we call True Stories, the question that we might want to ask is this. How do you know Jesus is true? How do you know that? The good news of Jesus is something that, uh, as we accept that, it evokes this change in people, this commitment, this transformation. It's important to know that Jesus is true. Now, there's various ways that we can do this, and somebody might say, well, we're going to know that Jesus is true by faith, and it's true. And we can know Jesus is true by faith. And we can also talk apologetics. We can appeal to the mind. We can appeal to reason. And that's true as well. But those kinds of things are going to have to wait for another day. Because there's another way to know that Jesus is true. 
When you talk to Paul, a little bit of pain in there was a lot of two things out there in his day. You know, one of the cool things that I think anyway is, is uh, we can go to this site or read about whatever this site in Italy that was Pompeii, which was a city that was around during the time of the early church. And uh, this city was by the volcano Vesuvius, which one day blew its top and it lost one third of the mountain in this volcanic eruption. And it, and it rained down this ash on the city and the surrounding regions. So that today people can go to that place and they can dig it out and they can find this time capsule, really, of a, of a place that would show us exactly what the world was like during the time of Paul. And there in the city of Pompeii, you can find, for example, a major temple to the goddess Isis. Now, what's significant about that is that this city is in, in Italy, not too far from Rome, and uh, Isis was a uh, Egyptian goddess. And yet, we were popular to worship Isis. The people who did so believed that there was some truth involved in that. And then in the Roman Empire, one of the things that Christians were oftentimes arrested because they didn't want to do is uh, there was a time to have emperor worship, but it would be temples set up to dead emperors, and you know, people would be expected to come and worship these dead emperors, and they thought that there was some truth to that. And then there were, of course, the major gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world, Zeus, Apollo, Athena, and the rest. And the people who did those kinds of things thought that there was some truth to that. So how in the world would these people during Paul's time possibly think that there was more to this Jesus other than just simply being a carpenter than this province of Herod called Galilee. How would they think that? Well, there was a way that as we read scripture, as we read the New Testament, we can see that it was commonly accepted that people would know. And that was, they would know if they were a follower of Jesus, they would know the presence of Jesus. The real life, living presence of Jesus in their life. And this is a, what we also call the Holy Spirit. That if a person is a follower of Jesus, a person is a believer in Jesus, that they would actually not just simply know things about Jesus or believe things about Jesus or have faith in Jesus and things like that, but they would actually know Jesus. That his presence would be there with them. So Paul said this in, in the book of Ephesians. He said, Having believed, having that faith, you are marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance, and to the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Since that time, the Spirit of God, I think, oftentimes, from what I've seen anyway, has been treated really more like a theological principle than as a present reality. But for these early Christians, he was no theological principle, he was a present reality. It's very, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ is a very real and powerful presence of God that people like Paul could look to. He probably didn't have to convince people and say, hey, you know that thing that's going on in your life? Well, that's God. No, no, no. They knew that this was God. They knew that this was the case. So he would be able to talk about another thing. Like, hey, that presence of God in your life, that's a deposit. Guaranteeing what's going to come. They experience. God's presence in life. The experience is alive. Who ever heard of an inauthentic experience? 
all experience is authentic. You cannot experience something without that experience itself testifying to the truth of the one experience. Back when I was in college, uh, I went to college in suburban Los Angeles. And uh, my roommate and I, my roommate was kind of different. I guess I was kind of different too because I went along with it. But we would go cruising. <laughs> cruising to places like Bel Air and Hollywood and places like that. And we would think that we had some better things to do like study instead. But we didn't. We went all the time anyway. So we would go cruising. And one day we decided, hey, why don't we go down to Burbank? Go to Burbank. See if we might be able to get onto the camel trip. And in those days, this is back in the early 80s, uh, the Tonight Show was hosted by none other than the legendary Johnny Carson. And, uh, you know, the theater there was, was pretty small, so you know, we, you know, we got in line and we were hoping to be able to get in there as part of the crowd for the Tonight Show. Well, we didn't get in. We didn't make the cut. So what we did do was, you know, we, as we were leaving, we set aside shack and we wanted over the guard shack to uh, ask the guards some questions. The guard shack for the parking lot, parking lot for the tonight show. We sort of talked to the guard there and so we engaged in a conversation with him and, and he invited us into his little guard shack. We sat there talking to him, you know, throughout the, uh, the, throughout the show. Finally, the show was over. I mean, we continued to talk for quite a while. The show was over and uh, the guests started to come out, the people started to come out from the tonight show and and one of the people that came out uh, was a guest that night on the stage that was Robert Blake. You may remember Robert Blake. I mean, he was um, a TV star who started in the stage called Beretta back then. And a uh, super nice guy. And he really engaged in conversation with And super nice guy. I'm sure that the guy that he shot a few years later didn't think he was so nice. But, you know, he, he, did, he did wind up shooting somebody. He didn't want to go into prison and, and all that kind of stuff. But at that point in time, he was just a TV star. Uh, yeah, that we got to talk to. And then eventually, John himself came driving out. Yes, he was driving his own car. He didn't you know, have a chauffeur or something like that. No, he was driving his own car. And John is, is really uh, naturally an introvert, so he didn't engage in as much conversation as Robert Blake did. But we did, you know, exchange some pleasantries and some conversation and things like that. And uh, then we headed, headed for home. Now, I can say that um, John Carson was not just you know, some kind of a, you know, imaginary person or a plot or something like that to try to lull you to sleep at night or something like that during the night show. No, no, he's, he's a very real, live, flesh and blood guy who drove his own car and talked like anybody else. How do I know that? Because I spoke with him. I, I had this interaction with him. I experienced his presence. He experienced mine. And therefore, I could testify this fact that Johnny Carson is rich. And I can testify to certain things about Johnny Carson, such as that he carried his own car, you know, things like that. He wasn't just some opinion among many. No, no. He was real because I experienced that. that. That's how I know. The experience by its very nature is authentic. When a court trial uh, wants to determine the truth, and hopefully we'll post by a bank loan to do that. They're going to invite witnesses to come in. Witnesses who experience something having to do with that trial. And they figure that if they bring people in and they share their experience, that experience is received 
as something that is true, something that testifies to the truth of God. I was standing on the corner eating my cotton candy ice cream when I heard this loud screech behind me and this smashing sheet metal. I turned around and there was a Hugo that had Cuba on the Mercedes. And I looked back to There's no greater evidence of truth in your own personal, real life experience. So when other Christians were threatened with jail or slavery or even death if they didn't repent their faith in Jesus, they found it difficult to do so. Because this is a part of who they are. They experience love. Experience his love for them, real in the present sense. Not just simply a theological idea. They experience the joy of Jesus Christ in their life, the peace of Jesus Christ in their life. And for them to repent that it would be not only repenting one who loves them personally and deeply, but also it would be like repenting who they are. The very person. But how could this be? How could it possibly be experienced in the living Jesus? Well, Jesus said this in John 14. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will, I will come to you. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This isn't just some theological principle. The Spirit of God living in you is a very present reality. It's the experience of God Himself in your life. And this gift is something that, that Jesus says the Father is delighted to give to you. He is eager to give to you. The, the Father will do so just simply by, by, by you asking for it. Therefore, speak it out. Ask for it. It is, as Paul said in Ephesians, the promise of the Holy Spirit who is a deposit, guaranteeing. What is the time? So you can rely on it. It's like when you submit an offer uh, to purchase a house. And when you do that, you know, one of the things that the person needs to do is, is also accompany that with a deposit. Why do we do that? It's to demonstrate to the seller that we're serious, that, that we actually are going to follow through on this, and we actually are going to close on this deal. So that's what Paul is talking about here when he says the spirit is a deposit, guaranteed. That what God has said is true. The judgment day is coming, that eternity is there, that paradise is there, that, that you get to spend all of that time with Jesus. And it's a wonderful, wonderful future that God has in store for you. There, there were people that, that I've had conversations with over the years who, who have asked me, well, how do you know this is true? How do you know? That, that this stuff about Jesus is true. And, and one answer I give them is this. Well, because I'm not in the habit of talking to myself. I've actually had conversations with the one who's the author of this story. And therefore, I can say that it's true. Because I have experienced them in my life. Now, Paul valued this kind of getting to know Jesus, this, this uh, having Jesus in his life, 
so highly that he says this in Philippians chapter 3, which I think is, personally, I think is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. He says this in part of that chapter. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I consider them precious. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is from truth. He's been saying that he's willing to believe everything so he might believe things about Jesus. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that he's willing to believe everything in order to know Jesus personally himself. And Jesus, by this time, when Paul wrote his words, would have been crucified about 25 or 30 years before. So how in the world is Paul going to know this crucified one who's been crucified now 25 or 30 years ago? How's he going to know him? How is it even possible? Unless what Jesus said is true. That he would not leave us as a witness, but he would come to us in the spirit and the presence to live in and with you. Not just as some theological principle, but as an experience, a present reality. And this is a powerful thing. It's not just simply a soul experience. It's not just a solo experience. No, it's kind of like there's a horizontal element to it and a vertical element to it. But we've got this horizontal element because in the Bible we read about how we, as believers in Jesus, are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And temples are where God dwells. So God dwells among us with, you know, with uh, collective temple. And then also, as I look at you know, the kind of vertical element, we're going down through time. As, as I look and read the stories of those people who come to know God over the years, over the last 2,000 years uh, since Jesus walked the earth, I can see the same kind of experience that they're describing and encountering God that I myself have experienced. And I can see where this person living in this age will have the same kind of experience as this one over here, and this one over here, and this one over here. That they all have experienced the Holy Spirit. It's, it's like one of the people, for example, was Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a great mathematician, French mathematician, physicist, and inventor, who, as a good scientist, didn't simply merely accept this, you know, this, you know, this crazy agnostic idea that, well, there is a God of this unknown. No. He's saying, no, I, I, if there is a God, I want to know him. I want to find out about him. So he did. He sought that out. And after his death, there was a housekeeper who was sorting through his closet and clothing and happened to notice something thrown into Pascal's coat. Beneath the cloth was a parchment, and inside of it, a faded piece of paper. There, written on that piece of paper, were some crosses. And next to the cross is some words written in Pascal's own hand. And this is the account of the first time he met the living God, the Spirit of God. And he said that, these words. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, December 26th, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past 
God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ. Your God will be my God. Pass out this man of science, this man of learning, this man who dwells in the realm of truth and truth. That Jesus, I will see Jesus. See, this is 1654. Had been crucified 